Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Welcome back to Run the Numbers. This is the first Run the Numbers intro, I might add, that I've ever shot with a sleeping infant next to me. So I'm going to try to not get too excited here and wake her up. Baby Cameron and I have been left to our own devices back at the crib as her mother and her grandmother have decided to make the trek to the mall for Black Friday sales, which to me sounds like as much fun as chewing glass. So nonetheless, this is also a big first because we have our, our very, very first public company CFO on the show, Sonali Parekh. So 17 or 18 episodes in, we are all grown up, folks. We are all grown up. So today's episode, like I said, is with Ring Central's incredible CFO, Sonali Parekh. We did almost an hour on how a CFO prepares for earnings calls. And what I'm finding is that listeners really respond well to the episodes where we go super deep on one topic. So an example would be Total Addressable Market with Sebastian from Lightspeed or Pricing and Packaging with Kyle from OpenView or Board Meeting Prep with Dave Kellogg. You can go back and listen to all those episodes if you want to go deep on a singular topic. And we'll continue to hammer singular topics when and where applicable. Before we get into today's episode and I wake up the baby next to me, this is probably the most excited I've ever been to release an episode because it's filled with so many golden nuggets. And if you're at a pre-IPO company, I want to say that this is an important lesson because you get into the mind of how a talented CFO goes through the before, during, and after of an earnings call. A lot of us have them marked on the calendar as kind of the quarterly Super Bowl we're moving towards. So this is a true masterclass in how to prepare. I want to do a quick mailbag question and then get over to this awesome episode. And the question this week is from Ramil Sheik at Ramshi1000 on Twitter. CJ, when allocating resources, how do you think about investing in R&D versus sales and marketing at series A, B, and C startups? This is right in my wheelhouse because the evolution of headcount over time is something I'm passionate about mapping out and because it's something that you can benchmark if you put in the time. And I'm a benchmarking aficionado. So for those who are either brokering the budgets uh, from the finance or FP&A side or the ones looking to receive more budget, listen up. So First, you want to identify where your department or your company is relative to the organization's overall life cycle. So companies will hire for different roles at different stages, depending on how much revenue they have. So when you're maybe sub 10 million in ARR, you over-index for people who can build the product because otherwise you would have nothing to sell. And as you scale through, say, 20, 25 million, you're going to increasingly layer on sales and marketing resources to distribute that product. And so I'm not saying that product and engineering fail to grow. I'm just saying the rate at which they grow will not be as fast as the go-to-market engine. And the inflection point in my experience where go-to-market resources get hired at a faster rate, and they may even overtake the R&D side of the house in terms of total headcount, that's going to typically coincide with the timing of a Series B or C fundraise. So that's when companies pour fuel on the sales and marketing fire after they found product market fit. The first sales are usually done by a founder and a couple of engineers who are trying to test for product market fit and they're selling to friendlies. Uh, so, you know, fellow tech founders and tech companies, but eventually they need to actually get experts to drive pipeline and close it. So 
Just a couple of other points. So regardless of how big a company gets, customer support is going to usually reach its terminal velocity, I call it, at around 8 to 10% of the org. So remember, only 100 percentage points to go around. Customer support, ideally between 8 and 10% or less. And I would also say the same range applies to GNA. So I look at it as at a, any startup or any tech company, there are really three groups of people. They're the people that build the product, R&D, the people that sell the product, sales and marketing, or the people that help the other two groups do it better. And I fall into that range. So GNA, you know, eight to 10% give or take a couple of, of BIPs, as the experts call it. However, um, I want you to be aware that CS and GNA may temporarily get out of whack during periods of building where you're trying to get the org ready for scale. And you're going to layer in that foundational core support, but don't freak out. It's okay to have what they say, uh, you know, big arms and skinny legs for a while, but don't skip leg day forever. So that is the evolution or migratory patterns of headcount. On to today's episode. It's a banger. Thank you. Give us five stars. Five, five, five stars. Back to another episode of the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm privileged to have with me today Sonali Parekh, the CFO of Ring Central. Thanks so much for joining me. It's really great to be here. And thanks so much for having me. So this conversation may get a little bit zany here. So Sonali just did a red eye back from San Francisco after being overseas in Asia and I just got back from the hospital having my second baby and I'm on two hours of sleep and my fourth or fifth coffee. But nonetheless, you can't stop the numbers. So we're going to jump right into it today. I'm going to start in perhaps an unconventional spot. Can you walk me through what was going through your head when you did your first public earnings call as a CFO? Oh, yeah, I can definitely do that. You know, when I go back and listen to the call, I think, wow, it doesn't come across just how nervous I was, which I think is a good thing. Um, You know, practice makes perfect. And I did practice a lot ahead of that. Look, in my head, you know, that little voice, it was like, whatever you do, don't screw this up. (laughs) But I will say being super prepared helped an enormous amount. And, you know, it reminds me of a saying that my dad used to always tell me, you know, by failing to prepare, you're preparing to fail. And it's kind of a truism I live by. I try and get my kids to, to, to live by it as well. Haven't quite converted them yet. But what I would say is, and, and I'll never forget this, in the run-up to the, the first uh, conference call, several of my directors, including my audit committee chair, who is an extremely tenured very experienced, savvy CFO. He was the former CFO of Intuit. He spent a lot of time helping me prep, as well as uh, another member of our audit committee, Ken Goldman, who was the former CFO of Fortinet, also the former CFO of Yahoo. He chairs many audit committees. I remember they they spent their weekends helping me prep for it. And I, I mean, we did... Uh, practice Q and A's. We did the curveball questions. You know, we did the question from the analyst who's trying to catch you out kind of question. So I felt like I was ready for anything that they'd throw at me. But of course there was a question that I wasn't prepared for. And then you just have to think on your feet. Do you remember what the question was by chance? Yes, I actually do. You know, we in the SaaS world don't guide that far out. We sort of guide just within, you know, a year. An analyst was trying very hard for me to give guidance beyond. He was trying to beat you. Oh yeah. 
he was trying to bait me. And it was all about, you know, what's the long-term financial profile you're trying to drive, i.e. what's your revenue going to be next year? So I tried to, um, you know, stick to certain guardrails. When you get asked a question that you're not prepared to answer, you answer a question that you are prepared to answer. And it actually gives you an opportunity to get a certain point across that you might not otherwise have had the opportunity to do. And there were a lot of nerves because there's a lot riding on it. And it's not just your own personal reputation, but it's all the people who are involved in the earnings process in the company who are counting on you to put your best foot forward. And I loved your quote about planning and preparation. There are two quotes that uh, I always reference to my team. So the first one was Dwight Eisenhower. He said, in preparing for battle, I've always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable just because stuff happens. And then less eloquent, but Mike Tyson, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Oh, I love that one. You said a lot of time goes into preparing for these calls. How many hours on average do you study for an earnings call? There's the hours of studying, but then there's also the preparation that takes place literally as soon as the quarter ends. So I sit down with my team. I review business performance and metrics, the financial data, but also one of the things that I think is most key, and this is something I brought over from HPE, where I spend time with each of our key business leaders across sales, marketing, product, and technology. And we do these sessions that are called the story behind the numbers. Mm. And it's probably the most important session that I do in terms of preparing for earnings. And it's spending time with those leaders because it's sometimes the nuggets and sound bites that you get from them that really give you the color of what's going on in the business. And then we dive deep into the details to make sure that, you know, I understand the metrics that we're disclosing and why things have changed. I I often focus on change, you know, like what's changed, what's different. And the questions that I ask our people internally are often really similar to the questions that I believe investors will ask. So for us at Ring Central, earnings is, it's a multi-week process and it's very, very closely intertwined with my own quarterly business review, so to speak. That's awesome. It also would have been a great name for this podcast, the story behind the numbers. And who who's usually involved in those meetings? Just to dig in a little bit there, like would you talk to the CMO or the chief product officer too for nuggets, or is it purely people who have you know a number that that they're beholden to? Yeah. So FP&A is obviously very very involved. As is you know, I have an amazing head of investor relations, also extremely experienced has a lot of great SaaS experience. So he's involved and, and and he helps me prep the questions that we give to the business. But I would say the number one, you know, functional person that I spend time with around earnings is CRO. I think that that is super critical and that would be closely followed by CMO. Product is interesting. You mentioned this past quarter because we It was a very prolific quarter for us in terms of new product introductions. I spent a lot more time with the product team. Typically, I've spent less time with the product team because our former CEO, Vlad Shmunas, who's also our founder, he is a P&T guy and he's quite involved in the earnings process. So a lot of the sort of gems, you know, the, the sound bites that you want, the nuggets often came from him. He used to always call them fun facts. And and I love it when there's fun facts, but 
you know, in earnings, sometimes there's some not so fun facts. <laughs> yeah. And what, what can be difficult about fun facts, because, you know, we weren't public, but I was at a company called Veeam at the time, and we would still report to our investors who most of were late stage private equity, what the sound bites were for the quarter. And we used to call them wow facts, but sometimes you end up, and I'm curious if this ever happens to you, you end up trying to find what's most interesting rather than what's most impactful to the business. Yes. And I think that's right. And that's why I felt like it fit really well with Vlad, sort of the founder's script. I think for a CFO, I stay away from the fun facts and go more into the, as you say, the facts that will have an impact or will drive changes to to potential forecast or outlook or business performance. Sure. And two words that you use there, you said stick to the same facts and then you said script. I wanted to ask you, we talk a lot on the podcast about templatizing your reporting for investors for consistency. How much of your quarterly earnings calls are templated or, or repeated versus you know, built from scratch each quarter. Yeah. Can I just tell you that I shared this question with my head of IR (laughs) and he said, are you thinking of replacing me with a bot? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which I am certainly not. He is amazing. But, you know, I think more and more templatizing is, is going to happen. And with, you know, LLMs, I think that will make it easier. And, and again, I, it's just about being efficient and it'll free us up to do more of the insightful thinking and, you know, preparing for the Q&A and preparing for the callbacks. But we try to templatize as much as we can. Certainly our investor presentation typically is fairly templatized. The scripts I find is quite hard to do rinse, wash, repeat. So those tend to be created from scratch. And we start with, you know, what are the five big messages, key messages we want to get across between myself, our CEO, Targ Rabiati, and Vlad, our, our, our founder and chairman. I had someone write into the podcast, actually, and they said, hey, CJ, I feel like I'm repeating myself every quarter to my investors. Am I doing it wrong or is that okay? Yeah, I don't know. I think repetition is actually a good thing. I think you know, investors want to know that there's consistency in your messaging. You know, if you're flip-flopping or I think another dangerous thing, and we have been guilty of doing this and, and, and it's something I'm trying to change over time, but cherry picking, you know, just pulling out a metric and only disclosing it once. I do remember at HPE, our, our general counsel, again, you know, amazing person to work with. He used to really call us out when we were cherry picking so I, I don't think there's anything wrong with repeating yourself and being very, very consistent. I think investors investors don't want volatility. You know, They want to know that when you make a commitment, not only are you going to deliver on it, you're going to update them on the milestones along the way, which requires a degree of repetition. The thing in SaaS is that the numbers do change quite a bit each quarter. So it's difficult for us to templatize everything. And also, I do like the idea of fresh thinking on an earning script, even if at times, you know, we do end up disclosing many of the same things. I like that fresh perspective. And I think at Ring Central, we have established a certain cadence and rhythm with the earnings process. So I feel it's, it's more consistent than it was when I joined a year and a half ago. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. 
If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com metrics. That's netsuite.com metrics to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com metrics. Can you take me through what the difference in roles and responsibilities are between FP&A versus IR when, when it comes to an earnings call? Sure. So absolutely a team effort, you know, one team, one dream, and, and, and we all feel invested in the process. We're a pretty lean team at Ring Central, so everyone has to roll up their sleeves. So everyone's very actively engaged. What I ask for from the team is just, please make sure I have the right data in front of me. Prepare me for the tough questions and help me shape the messages that we want to share externally with investors. And particularly when there's any change to that messaging. And I think for the the messaging and scripting, it is very much IR. In terms of the data and, you know, I have a it's probably too long a slide deck, but sort of a 150-page slide deck that I get at the end of the quarter, which has a lot of the metrics that I pull from. Not, you know, we don't obviously disclose all of these, but they help me in terms of forming the picture of what actually happened in the quarter. And that is very much down to um, FP&A. And, you know, I, I have an amazing finance team at Ring Central. I'm, I'm really lucky. I mean, it's a very, very strong team. I never worry about the accuracy or integrity of the data. The timing sometimes, like, you know, I always want everything yesterday and they say, well, you know, the bookings are coming in the last day of the quarter. Like we can only get things to you as quickly as we can, but it's a very, very strong team. And that's advice to, you know, any CFO out there, build a great team. Nothing wrong with having team members who are actually better than you and more experienced than you in certain areas. You know, I have an incredible controller, an incredible chief accounting officer, amazing head of FP&A. Our treasurer is superb. It's, it's, it's truly a team effort. And you had said that you get a 150-page deck. I'm sure there are quite a few metrics on those oh, yeah. slides. How do you determine, I guess, a two-parter, which metrics you'll disclose? And then how do you choose which ones you're going to guide to? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think in SaaS companies, there are certain things that investors always expect. And we would always want to do what, you know, is the minimum disclosure, or actually we want to do more than the minimum, but, you know, we would always do disclosure around revenue, 
we don't guide on ARR, but we disclose total ARR. So you can infer what the bookings are from, you know, the current ARR minus last quarter's ARR. We disclose net retention. We give color around ARPU, so average revenue per user to show the durability and resilience of the business model. We disclose some productivity measures, certainly operating margin, both gap and non-gap. But there are other metrics we don't disclose. You know, we, we work in a very competitive industry and uh, the competitors we, we compete against are formidable. And, you know, there are things that are commercially sensitive. We also work with a lot of partners that, first of all, we'd have to check with them on anything we disclose, but they are often very sensitive around disclosures. The other thing is, you know, I'm always obsessed with disclosing customer examples and I love the marquee customer names, you know, new logos and customers are often really sensitive. So both our sales and IR teams work hard with our customers to try to convince them why it's in their interest to allow us to talk about, you know, what it was that Ring Central did for them and why they chose Ring Central versus the competitors. But, you know, it involves disclosure and the metrics we we disclose. And, you know, I am thinking actually at the moment as we develop our 2024 AOP, which we are literally knee deep in, actually neck deep in, about what we might want to change in terms of disclosures and, and, and being even more transparent because I think investors do value transparency. Once you give a metric, can you not take it back or will analysts perceive that as a red flag, you think? Yeah, I think if you're disclosing a metric, you better be prepared to disclose it for at least, I would say, eight quarters. Otherwise, this cherry picking, I, I think it, it breeds a little bit of distrust. So yes, absolutely. I think if you disclose something, you know, investors will expect to continue to see it or you need a really good reason to pull it. I've always wondered how you put the toothpaste back in the tube on something like that, because to your point, they're going to expect it. And usually people don't take away a metric because something's doing so good. Exactly. And I think that that's a natural conclusion investors will, you know, jump to. And investors often sell first, ask questions later. So you have to be very aware of that dynamic. And, you know, the other thing is our former CEO at, at Hewlett Packard Enterprise used to say, if you're explaining, you're losing. It's the same like Shakespeare, methinks that doth protest too much. If you're having to explain what over and over, like, it, it, it just puts you, I think, potentially in a bit of a corner. So again, I would just, at the outset, be extremely thoughtful about what you do want to disclose and why it makes sense and what it might look like four quarters from now, eight quarters from now, 12 quarters from now. And if in doubt, discuss it with your audit committee chair. Chances are they have more experience than you and they will give you good advice on what makes sense. That was an amazing soundbite. And it was actually the first time we've ever had a Shakespeare quote on the podcast. So I used to actually work with someone who said, once you get into a debate over definitions, you've already lost the room. Would you agree yes. with that when it comes to explanations? Oh, I absolutely do. And I think that's on the same vein, you know, in the, in the same way that if you're discussing a potential conflict, if something looks like a conflict, look, if you're having to talk about it, Chances are, whether it is or it isn't, like there's something there, right? I think that whoever said that is very, very wise. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. 
No one likes surprises during planning season. That's why Planful empowers teams just like yours to drive peak financial performance in every corner of your business. What sets Planful apart? Think purpose-built applications for every department, from FP&A to accounting, marketing to HR, all within built-in financial intelligence. Planful can get you up and running within weeks and requires minimal IT involvement, so you can rapidly and seamlessly engage everyone across the business on your key financial processes. Best of all, you have an endless runway with Planful. We have an unmatched ability to scale with you, no matter how quickly you grow. See why over 1,300 customers around the world choose Planful as their flexible, user-friendly, end-to-end financial performance management platform. Go to planful.com metrics to see how you can tackle unwanted surprises in real time. That's planful.com metrics. And you'd mentioned disclosing ARR, and I just want to dig into this one because it's an example people will maybe take with them for for future reference. But so you choose to disclose it, but you choose to not guide to it. Is that because of the volatility piece that you'd mentioned earlier? Exactly. So between quarters, ARR can be somewhat volatile. And then an investor could potentially say, oh, well, you know, bookings have dropped by X percent. Does this mean revenue is about to cave? No, no, that's actually not the case at all. And it can often be very impacted by linearity. And, you know, we and our peers typically don't guide on ARR. So they disclose it at the end of a quarter and certainly every year, but not to guide on. Again, it's something we could consider in the future as we're now a $2.3 billion ARR business. You know, there are certain things that now that we're at the scale we're at may make sense to disclose in the future. But, you know, up to now, we have not gotten on that. And it's exactly for what the reason you say it's because there's more volatility in this metric, ARR, than other metrics. And that could potentially, you know, lead an analyst to ask you a question that's guiding or out of left field. I wanted to ask you, do sell-side analysts usually have a hidden question behind the question they're giving you, or is it truly, you know, a fastball down the middle? Yeah, it depends on the analyst and you get get to know the analyst too. I mean, you really do. And I think a great head of IR, which our head of IR, Will Long, certainly spends a lot of time and is proactive in terms of trying to understand the types of questions the various analysts that cover our stock are likely to ask so that we're prepared to answer them in the Q&A. And we tend to know, like we always have the top 10 areas that we know investors will be focused on. And and they tend to be, we like to focus on the areas that are going to be difficult, that are going to be harder. Because, you know, the softballs, like anyone can answer that, right? It's either curveballs or as you say, the question behind the question, like what are they really getting at here? So part of that prep, you know, you talked about like how, how many hours do you prepare? Part of the prep in the Q&A is like, okay, what's this person likely to ask? What have they been writing about us recently? How have the last couple of calls with them gone? And our head of IR keeps very detailed notes. And again, I think this is something that we might be able to use LLMs and AI on going forward, you know, as we keep logs of, you know, all the questions that investors have asked over the last however many conference calls. So you become a lot better armed at dealing with certain questions. And like, you know, when a certain analyst is about to ask a question, we'll all look at each other in the room with a knowing look when it's the type of analyst that's likely to throw you a curveball or give you a, 
hidden question behind the question, you know? That's amazing. And I can actually see in my mind a couple of analysts who have been known to to throw a grenade in there and see how people react. Yeah, it's a grenade. Exactly. <laughs> and I bet a lot of people are curious, how do you decide which analysts attend the call? Does the company get to pick who listens in live and who gets to ask a question? Yeah. So we do get to pick, but we don't limit anyone who wants to listen in because the whole point is, you know, be as transparent and you yeah. know, disclose everything at the same time to everyone. In terms of the questions, we do have to prioritize because there's only so much time. You know, the earnings call is an hour. Prepared remarks are like 20, 25 minutes. I mean, we know, like we count the words, right? We know exactly how long we'll be speaking for and and you can't get everyone in. We do try to rotate. And there are certain analysts that have a bigger following in yeah. our stock or who have covered us for longer or do more detailed deep dive work on us or spend time with us on the road. And I think I do like to reward those analysts, you know, because they've invested in us. So I want to invest back in them. And that doesn't necessarily mean, oh, we only let the analysts that are going to ask easy questions, ask questions. That's, that's not it at all. Sometimes the, the analysts that do really detailed work and channel checks, they can actually be the ones that even can be on the slightly more cautious side. And it's important that they get a chance to air their questions too, because we want to know what they're thinking. And if they're asking the questions, investors probably have those questions too. So we do try to rotate. It's it's our head of IR who does it. And the other thing we do is I often think the first question is a nice one for Vlad, you know, when he was CEO. Like it's nice for the CEO to kick off. And it's often more a strategic question as opposed to like, you know, oh, can you tell me exactly what, you know, how many basis points of margin beat was due to FX? <laughs> you know, you don't want that to be the leading question, you know. You you lose the audience. I would stick around for that question, but um <laughs> yes, bit of an you and I would. I wanted to follow up on that during the QA. For the earnings call, are you physically in the room with the CEO? Is it easier to read who's going to answer a question that way? Oh, definitely. We are always in the room together. So we, on the day of earnings, we do a practice session in our boardroom ahead of the call. Then we actually, not to give too much away, but we pre-record. A lot of people do. And, you know, I'm kind of in two minds over pre-recording, but we do pre-record and then while we're speaking and we listen to ourselves speak on the actual live call, we will then do a little bit of, because by then the, the results are already out. You've seen the after hours reaction. Some of the analysts will even write to the head of IR saying, this is what I'm going to push on in the call. So then we'll be like super tactical. You know, like if you get a question on a new product, Vlad, that's yours. If we get a question on M&A, Tarek, that's yours. If we get a question on balance sheet and our convertibles, Sona, you take that one. You know, so we get super, super tactical. And the other thing we do is when we see one of us ramble on an answer, we kind of make <laughs> gesticulations and, you know, we're not afraid to do that either. But overall, I would say being in the room is really important. This was the inside baseball I was hoping we would get to. So thank you for, <laughs> for taking me to that. So who's in the room? It's CFO, CEO, head of IR, anyone else usually in yes. the usual crew? Chief accounting officer right next to me. And I okay. always ask him to sit next to me. They both. 
he's like a computer. And then I also have our corporate treasurer because, you know, for us, well, he's our corporate treasurer, but he's also one of my very senior colleagues in finance. He has treasury, corporate development, procurement, and and he's in the room as well. And he's really good on the messaging side of things. He's ultra involved in the whole process. The other thing I would say, and this is something, you know, advice I have for CFOs who are building finance orgs, what you find is people within your finance org, direct reports, or even one below a direct report, they often find, you know, great professional development in being part of an earnings process. And it's a glimpse into a world that they don't traffic in every day. And there is somehow some glamour, you know, in dealing with Wall Street. I spent 25 years on Wall Street. So I think the glamour, you know, that, that, that washed <laughs> away. It is a great opportunity for CFOs to provide, you know, stretch learning and, and development opportunities. And we even do that with not just earnings calls, but, you know, the callbacks and then also the conferences. Our corporate controller came to a conference a couple of months ago and and, and did a phenomenal job. And now, you know, it just helps them for that next role they're likely to take on. The other thing I would say is I come from a Wall Street background and have a ton of IR experience. You know, I worked on many, many IPOs in my career and at HPE, actually, although I was a divisional CFO, I also had investor relations reporting up into me. It was a great team, highly experienced head of IR. But many people don't have that IR side of things. So they'll come from like an FP&A background or a controller background or chief accounting officer background. And they have all the technical skills, but they might not have the messaging and, you know, managing Wall Street expectation skills. And those are really important in becoming a public company CFO. And what I will tell you is when I knew I was ready to make the jump from divisional CFO to public company CFO, and this is my first public company CFO gig. I've been in it for about a year and a half. I'm loving it. And you know, I think one of the things that made me an attractive candidate was that IR side of the house that I brought with me. And it's something that I really do try to help pass on to my team members. And, you know, in 360 reviews, I, I, I get the feedback that they, they love that part of the job. They actually want more of it. It actually doesn't feel like work to them. You know, it's a stretch assignment and, and they enjoy it. So any opportunity you get to do that, I would I would really encourage it. I love the encouragement you gave for people to go into investor relations. I had ran FP&A groups at two companies, and then I had a chance to do a stint in treasury and then a stint in investor relations. And I'd ask somebody in my network, hey, do you think I should do investor relations? And for some reason, they had told me, hey, I think that's going to be kind of a dead end within the finance department for you because a lot of people in IR end up doing IR forever, which there's nothing wrong with that. But they knew I wanted to become a CFO. And to me at the time, I said, I think the most valuable tool that I could add to my arsenal, like I know the numbers, I know the metrics is storytelling. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn how to tell the company's story and also build relationships with people outside of the company. And because FP&A, traditionally, you talk to people inside the company more than outside. And I wanted to be able to build my network. And I was really glad that I took that shot on doing FP&A for two years. 
Yeah, and it's probably why you're a great CFO. I, so, I haven't um, made it to the public ranks yet, but uh, <laughs> investor relations for all those time. people. <laughs> yeah, for all those people looking for stamps on their CFO passport, uh, shout out to investor relations. Exactly. Yeah. And you've now had two CEOs at Ring Central. I wanted to ask you, because you've also worked with CEOs closely in other roles, what do you think's at the core of a good CEO and CFO relationship? Yeah, so I get asked this question a lot. So sorry for sounding cliche, but trust. I mean, it it comes down to trust and knowing that you have each other's backs and, you know, trying to help that person be even better than they are on their own. You know, finance is all about business partnering, but I think in the modern role of a CFO, it, it goes beyond that. You know, it's not just about landing the plane, like rolling up numbers. Those days, I think, are gone. Or there might be some CFOs that are still around that are like that, but I think that they might pigeonhole themselves. So it's, how do I be a strategic partner to the CEO? And how do I help him be more prepared for not just the investor-facing parts of the job, but really about driving shareholder value, you know, because at the end of the day, we're all here working for our stakeholders. And I think it's really helping the CEO be very focused on that North star and just being supportive. And, you know, my CEO is a friend, a colleague, a mentor, (laughs) a rabbi, a therapist. (laughs) He's all of these things to me. And I can go to him good day or bad day and sit down with him and have a very open, transparent conversation. And I think that's super, super important. The other thing is, and and I ask this of my team as well, but if I ever have any difficult news or message or metric or something that's happened, I want to go straight to the point and air it almost immediately. You know, of course, I understand it first, but sitting on anything just doesn't work because that's what erodes trust. And trust is one of these things where, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. And it didn't happen overnight with Vlad and I. I think it took a quarter or two because we were getting to know each other. I mean, he always jokes when when I was interviewing for Ring Central, you know, he always says we dated because it's true. We met several times over the course of about six months. But you only really get to know someone when you're working with them day to day. And I think, you know, trust is something that takes a long time to build, but it's lost in an instant. And you just never want to be in that position. So I think it's just this like trust, transparency, and again, just helping them focus and be their best and helping them deliver on that North Star vision and, and I think in finance, we're really uniquely placed to do that. You know, we're the cross-section of everything. We touch almost everything in finance. You know, it's a really privileged role, actually, being a CFO and or, or being, you know, one of the senior members of a finance team. We had spoken to Charlie Kevers, CFO of Carta, and he had called the CFO the truth teller, both inside the org and outside the org. And I, I love that. I love that moniker for it. And I asked Charlie, how do you know when to tell bad news? And he said, you should pick up the phone the second you know that you're not going to hit a number or hit a plan that wow. you committed so to. So that's exactly the same philosophy. I love that. And and I think like no one is going to go wrong with that advice. Exactly right. 
don't sit on it. First of all, it's going to cause you so much anguish, you know, as you stew on it. It's like, you know, problem aired, problem shared. And then you have, you know, someone who's likely very experienced helping you, you know, figure out how you're going to mitigate it. And by the way, the board that I sit on as audit committee chair, we run the same, you know, ship over there. And and I have a super close relationship with the CFO there, Tom Schiller. He's amazing. Like I learned from him. He He's also really experienced and, 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 you know, incredible at what he does. But I think that open relationship and, you know, in French, we have an expression and it's, I'm going to say it in French, les nombres sont étrus. And it's, the numbers are stubborn and it means that numbers don't lie, which is kind of the truth teller. That's incredible. Sam Zell, one of my favorite investors who was a public company CEO for a long time in the real estate space. He used to say we're cursed because we know the numbers. <laughs> exactly. I'm getting some great quotes on this podcast, both English and French. Those are the only two languages I know, so I'm sorry. We're going to tap out there. You beat me by one already. I'm still learning English. Another, I guess to dig more into that, so what do you think separates the great CFOs from the good CFOs? Yeah, so I'm going to lean a little bit on, on, on what I said about it's not just about landing the plane, right? And and it's not just about being technically savvy. Of course, we need to technically understand revenue recognition and you know accounting standards and depreciation and amortization, but like that's kind of the basic minimum. The great CFOs are the CFOs that are partnering across the business, not just with the CEO. That's also easy to fall into the trap of. Yeah. I just manage up to my CEO. We live in our ivory tower. No, that doesn't work. You better be in the field speaking to your, I'm talking SaaS here, but you know, in, in the SaaS world, speaking to your CRO, speaking to your CMO, going out and meeting customers. I'm very lucky. I, I attend our customer advisory board where we speak to our top 10 customers. I learn more from those three days than months and months of just reading Q's and K's, right? Like, what do our customers really want? What do they care about? Why do they leave us? You know, I'm spending way more time with our chief customer officer. I think a great CFO is also someone who's very entrenched in the business. And the other thing is just that strategic lens. So it's it's not good enough to just say, okay, what's going to happen this quarter or next quarter? It's what is happening to this industry? How is the paradigm shifting? What's happening to pricing? What's happening to the competitive landscape? What is likely to happen in terms of M&A? How do we scale from, for us, we're 2.3 billion. How do we get to 5 billion? Those are the questions. And it's about new products. It's about driving productivity in your sales force. It's so many things that are not just your gap financials. And I think that's, that's truly what separates you know a good CFO from a great CFO. I've asked that question on every podcast so far, and I think that might have been the best answer to it. So thank you. Thank you. So what we're going to do is move into what we like to call our long ass lightning round. And so (laughs) the first question I'll hit you with is what's an example of something you've screwed up in your career? It could be at this job or any other role. Okay. So one thing I definitely screwed up is When I came back from my second maternity leave, I was working at a bulge bracket investment bank. 
And it was just at the end of the global financial crisis. And whilst I was on maternity leave, a lot of my team was let go without my consultation or knowledge. And when I came back, they said, great news. You are now head of this massive team because they merged a couple of sectors together. And instead of grabbing the opportunity, I think I allowed myself to be a little bit bitter about the decisions that were made. And I ended up leaving that job very shortly after. And to this day, I still look back and think, you know what? There's often going to be situations that are outside of your control where you inherit a situation. And as a great leader, you have to take what you're given, the hand you're dealt, make the best of it, and then go out and do the best job you can. Wow. It is scary sometimes to take the unknown situation and to use something that maybe catalyze the situation from the outside as kind of an excuse to to not you know, grab the bull by the horns. Exactly. I mean, I still have dreams about it, although I'm happy where I am. And, you know, I think it worked out. I think it worked. It out. worked. I think it worked out. Exactly. Thank you. So if you could tell your younger self something, knowing what you know today, what would you tell her? Speak up, use your voice. Don't let hierarchy stand in your way. Like be heard, get your point of view across because chances are, it's going to be different and additive to the conversation. That's awesome. Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep your stack. Sponsored by Tropic, the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. If you're comfortable sharing, what tools are you using today to run the finance department? Look, we grew really quickly. You know, we're a $2.3 billion company. Like two years ago, we were $1 billion. I mean, we grew really, really quickly. So I think a lot of the processes are not as efficient and not as automated as they could be. Mm-hmm. We've actually just introduced Coupa, the guy I was telling you about earlier, um, my SVP of corporate development and procurement and treasury. He brought them in and we're, we're saving significant, significant money from that implementation. I want to do more of that. And, you know, we're just scratching the service in terms of RPA and you know, using AI. One of the things that's a little bit of a, you know, worry for me is like, what if I miss something that we should be doing in AI? So I'm always keen to hear. And and whenever I meet other CFOs, I'm always like, what are you guys using? Is there a tool that like we should be considering at Ring Central? Because that's one area where I think we're probably not as robust as we could be. I think there's there's certainly room for more automation and that's going to require investment from me. And, you know, AOP is happening right now, our annual operating plan. And I, I want to ensure that we set aside some some funds for investment in, in, in automating more and more of what we do. And what about your ERP or FP&A tool? Are you using anything there? Yeah, so we haven't really made any big changes there. Um, we use NetSuite. Nice. NetSuite's a sponsor of the pod, so... Shut up oh, amazing. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah, we're legit now. We got we got real sponsors. So last question I got. And who do you use again for your um <laughs> unified communications? I forget. 
I proudly use Ring Central. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Shout out Ring Central. Yeah. And we appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I got you on this pod because I was a customer. So thanks for doing it. Last question I got for you. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen someone try to expense? Oh gosh. Okay. The craziest was a $3,000 tip on a $1,000 bill. Whoa. Yeah. Oh yeah. But you know what? The internal controls worked <laughs> because it came to my desk. You had some generous staff. Yeah. So let's just say that salesperson wore that one. <laughs> it took him <laughs> a couple of quarters to pay it back, but they yeah. They wore that one. That's good. I'm, gonna, I'm that stealing one. that phrase. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for carving out time for us. I've learned an immense amount and um, I know the listeners will appreciate it. So thanks a lot, Sonali. Oh, I really enjoyed it too. And I feel so honored that you took time out of your schedule after having a new little born baby. So all the best to you and your wife and your family and welcome to the world, little one. Thank you so much. Take care, CJ. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torn and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.